but for most companies, these moves will merely replace revenues and profits lost to commoditization and increase competition. They won't represent a platform for driving significant sustained new growth. This is true for a variety of reasons. Let's begin with the challenging dynamics facing product innovation-oriented growth moves, brand extensions, core product enhancements, and new product introductions. After years of brand extensions, most spin-off products are serving ever smaller niche markets and fighting for space on increasingly crowded shelves. The same applies to such basic services as banking, hospitality, and travel, which can be thought of as products in this context. For example, between 1980 and 1998, the number of annual new food product introductions in the United States grew fivefold to nearly 11,000. Similarly, daunting statistics could be cited for cars and CDs, books and cosmetics, toys and televisions. In such a world of saturation, is the world waiting eagerly for your next product extension? Not likely. Thus, most companies' product extensions, think of American Express Optima or Pepsi Blue, are producing increasingly small returns in terms of growth, especially in percentage terms. The bigger your company, the bigger the growth opportunities you need if you hope to achieve double-digit growth. But while many of the billion-dollar companies of 15 years ago had robust product extension pipelines, the same pipelines are producing only a trickle of growth for today's $10 billion companies. The disproportion is growing increasingly painful. Product enhancement is another largely depleted avenue for new profit growth. In most industries, truly differentiating new product breakthroughs are becoming increasingly rare. As a result, product competition in one industry after another is reduced to back and forth jockeying, as first one competitor and then another introduces a product with slightly better performance. Think of Nintendo and Sony, Intel and AMD, Boeing and Airbus. Avis and Hertz. The advantages gained in this tit-for-tat combat are invariably slender and fleeting. And because meaningful product breakthroughs have become rare, customers are extending their product replacement cycles. If the newest car, copier, or computer is only marginally better than last year's model, customers can wait longer to replace it. Sales growth thus shrinks further. Even new product innovation is a largely depleted avenue for consistent profit growth. Of course, there will always be new technologies and new products, and some of these will provide genuine growth opportunities. But the intensity of today's product competition means that most product-driven growth is likely to be increasingly low-margin and short-lived. This is why consumer electronics companies struggle to post profits despite a never-ending cascade of new gadgets. In high-tech industries, the vast majority of companies and initiatives founded on breakthrough technologies fail to get off the ground. Think of Next Computer, Apple's Newton, or Sprint's Ion Communications platform. Even the most successful high-tech companies have been bottle rockets that experience three to four years of spectacular growth and stellar financial performance, followed by equally spectacular collapse as newer technologies emerge and customer needs shift. This pattern has been borne out in the histories of such former high flyers as Wang, Data General, Rom, and Digital. Recently, with companies such as Lucent and Palm, this cycle has compressed to two years. Thus, while technological innovation will be a source of growth for some companies and is clearly a major contributor to macroeconomic growth, relying on it for revenue growth is a highly risky proposition.
For all these reasons, the vast majority of companies are now finding that product innovation is, at best, a source of profit replacement or profit protection. It isn't a source of new long-term growth. The other legs of the traditional growth strategy, international expansion and acquisitions, are also largely depleted of their potential. International markets, often viewed as a rich field for growth, have indeed created decades-long growth for companies such as Coca-Cola, Boeing, and McDonald's. Increasingly, however, international markets hold declining opportunities for significant new growth. For one thing, many companies have already exploited the richest international opportunities. A decade ago, international sales might have been 15 to 20 percent of revenues at most Fortune 500 companies. Today, foreign markets drive 40 to 50 percent of revenues. In addition, most industries, the largest foreign markets, Western Europe and Japan, are now as mature, competitive, and saturated as the United States. And most emerging markets, despite all the billion consumers in China rhetoric, are much smaller, especially when measured by consumer and industrial purchasing power rather than by mere headcount. They're also generally plagued by inefficient distribution channels, economic and political instability, and protectionist laws. Worse, emerging markets that once looked promising are increasingly producing world-class competitors that challenge U.S. firms, not only abroad but also on their home turf. Think of Korea's Samsung in electronics and Hyundai in autos. Or they backslide suddenly into economic chaos. Think of Brazil, Argentina, Russia, and Thailand. Now let's turn to mergers and acquisitions, a huge component of the 1990s growth story. From 1994 to 2000, M&A activity grew sevenfold to $1.4 trillion per year. But the pace of deal-making has dropped precipitously as the high stock valuations that a 